Hey climbers, welcome back to Climb by VSC, a weekly show about building and scaling startups in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jacob Poor, general partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week, I or a member of our VSC team will speak with a pioneer in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've all heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories of purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. As always, I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now let's climb. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Climb by VSC. I am so thrilled today to be joined by Sarah Applebaum, who serves as a partner at Pangea Ventures. Pangea is an advanced materials VC fund that backs companies utilizing the latest breakthroughs in material science, chemistry, and biology to solve many of society's most pressing issues. Naturally, a lot of these have been uh, advancements that fit our preferred conversation topic of climate adaptation and climate innovation. And Sarah brings almost a decade of VC and company building experience to the team at Pangea, and she's cultivated expertise in building teams, scaling early stage ventures, and building the capital stacks for those companies as well. She's also an active mentor to many early stage entrepreneurs. So I want to start by saying thank you so much for joining me on Climb, Sarah. Yeah, Jay, thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, I'm excited to chat with you on a host of topics, especially because we haven't really dove deep into this topic of material science investing and advanced materials investing. But before we get to that, for our listeners that are not familiar with Pangea, tell us about the origins of the fund, stage focus, check size, all that good stuff, and then also how you came to this work as a hard tech and advanced materials investor. Absolutely. So Pangea, for those who aren't familiar, is a 20-plus year hard tech-focused venture capital fund founded in 2000-2001, and we invest in companies leveraging advancements in materials, chemistry, biology, and biochemistry. Why these types of technology solutions, you might ask? Well, we're very solutions-oriented and believe that some of the world's most pressing and fundamental challenges, like atmospheric decarbonization, for example, need to be solved with science-based, hard-tech solutions. And we want to be solving big, important problems at Pangea. So our areas of focus at the fund are climate solutions broadly, which encompasses industrial decarbonization, technologies around energy transition, green chemistry, green materials and circular economy, food and water systems, so decarbonizing food production, alternative proteins, water treatment and industrial efficiencies related to water use and reuse. And of course, human health is directly impacted by the environment in which we live, whether that's air pollution, extreme heat, changing climate, water quality, and so we're also investing in human health and well-being and technologies that help improve uh, patient outcomes while reducing cost of care delivery. We are a Series A investor, so we look to invest in companies where the rubber has really started to hit the road when it comes to commercial traction. So the technology is proven, it's left the lab, and been demonstrated in the field with at least one strong reference customer. And so the primary proceeds is to build and scale the commercial side of the business as opposed to you know, continuing to invest in fundamental scientific discovery. So our typical check size is in the three to $6 million range, though we have a little bit of flexibility there. Always keep reserves for follow-on. You know, we wanna be long-term partners with the founders and the management teams that we work with. And geographically, we're investing in companies with operations in North America, so Canada and the United States. Lots of stuff to unpack there. So uh, I guess where I'll start is talking about, you know, this idea of Series A as it pertains to companies at this stage, right? Looking through your portfolio, obviously saw the overlap with 
what people would traditionally think of as like biotechnology investments. And then obviously, you know, climate investments that are working at the molecular level or they're working at biochemistry level. What do the stages really mean at this stage? And um, maybe compare and contrast them to like a series A in traditional venture versus what a series A looks like when you're talking about material sciences. Great question, Jade. I think there's one other distinction that we need to layer on here is what does a series A look like, you know, 2019 and 2023 versus accelerated hype capital deployment cycle from 2023 to, I don't know, mid to late 2022, because, you know, we were seeing companies, you know, 2021 raising 20, 30, 50 million dollars seed rounds for technologies that were still in the lab, fundamental science projects and, and years away from commercialization in areas with a lot of tailwinds behind them, whether it's through, you know, changing government regulation, government support, drive from industry, and, you know, two topics come to mind there, hydrogen and carbon capture uh, in the climate yeah. tech space. And, you know, we might be seeing some of that now still with chat GPT, large language models and generative AI, but different industries, different applications. And so I think generally speaking, whether you're a software investor, a hard tech or climate investor, Series A is where you really want to be seeing evidence of product market fit. There's the company is advancing commercially at a rate that is equivalent to or starting to surpass the technology development rate where the material, the product, the service is in hands of customers. They're getting that feedback. Pilots have been or are in the process of being completed where there is a clear path to first revenue or that first revenue has already been realized. If we think about enterprise software, you might be looking at cost of customer acquisition, monthly recurring revenue, or other types of leading indicators. ARR, MRR for hard tech companies is less relevant, but what's more relevant is really understanding what does that sales cycle look like and why is somebody choosing to purchase from this particular startup as opposed to, you know, the incumbents in the space or other new entrants. Right. So said another way, there has to be product market fit, but the signals of product market fit are very different when you're, you know, potentially looking at one or two customer proof points. Really, as I understand it, you're looking to see that this is solving the customer's problem that we know, whether those metrics map to some kind of a, a revenue or a utilization target, that's a little more flexible. Absolutely. And I guess talking about some of the various categories that you touched on in, in sort of the, the early uh, question we were talking about, what climate tech encompasses, right? That's a lot. It's a lot of things from water filtration to metals and mining to, you know, all these different categories where advanced materials and chemistry kind of fits in. Are there kind of standard things that you look for across those companies? Or do you really have to take a bespoke approach when you're meeting companies that are, you know, potentially pitching you for an A round? Great question. From an industry or market perspective, Jay, definitely more of a bespoke approach because some industries are regulated. If we think about agriculture and crop input, these are areas where you require EPA registration and EPA approvals. And so not unlike investing in medical devices or healthcare, you need to do field trials and collect data and submit your active ingredient for approval. And so that's a longer sales cycle versus a mining extraction or metals extraction technology where it's not regulated in that same way. And so we need to understand the regulatory environment, industry tailwinds, but what's ubiquitous, I'd say, across all of the companies that we look at that we do due diligence on and ultimately end up in our portfolio are led by strong, passionate, experienced management teams 
solving an urgent customer problem. And usually it's a top three or top five problem for their key customers so that it stays on the priority list through, you know, the ups and downs in markets, geopolitical situations, other other business items that come up where there's a clear path to scaling and profitability. So, you know, we are looking to invest in companies that don't require $200 million in equity investment in order to build the first of their kind commercial installation, deliver product to customers and, and looking really at capital efficient business models. And then of course, you know, yeah. later on what the business model looks like, overall market conditions, competition, M&A activity, you know, can this be a venture scale company in terms of yeah. enterprise value and, you know, what does a potential liquidity event look like? You know, could this be an M&A target or... Is the business robust enough that it could be a go public candidate, you know, in five to seven years because we have investors that we're accountable to? It's a really interesting theme that has emerged with a lot of our conversations on the show, Sarah, where we uh, compare and contrast sort of the lessons from clean tech 1.0 into kind of this new wave of, of climate tech. And obviously the quantum of dollars in climate tech today, LP dollars, especially so much greater than they were even in, in clean tech. But then obviously the pitfalls are there too. There were investments that were made that today we would call them infrastructure investments and say that they may not necessarily have been the best fit for venture. As somebody who has been in and around this space for a long time, are there kind of lessons that you take from the past wave of, call it broadly, climate tech investing that you apply to the deals you look at today? Absolutely. And, you know, it's hard to be, you know, in venture as a firm for 20 years and not have some lessons learned. Some of the key lessons that we've embedded in our DNA and incorporated into our investment thesis for this next generation of clean tech investing are around capital efficiency uh, and capital light business models. How much investor capital is required to get to that first meaningful customer revenue? Second is around stage of investment. There's a lot of non-dilutive funding, research grants, government funding, and philanthropic dollars going in to fund early stage scientific research and discovery around a lot of climate-related solutions. That's not the right place for closed-end 10-year venture funds to really be playing because this can take a very long time. And the third lesson, a lot of companies we, we've invested in the past or meet with today, believe that their first revenue is six to 12 months out. However, that six to 12 months can be a constant over a five-year period because the customer is changing the spec, regulations is changing, the technology is slower to adopt. And those are the three things that are really core to our investment thesis. One of the things I was listening for that I maybe didn't pick up on was this idea of measuring impact. We're starting to see it become uh, more of a thing that, that is a priority for LPs as they're thinking about where they allocate their dollars. We've had funds on that say, hey, we want to be directionally positive, but we don't measure CO2. And we have funds that have very strict CO2 reduction requirements with every company they look at. Where do you fall on that spectrum in terms of how you evaluate companies? And um, I guess let's extrapolate it out. How should the industry be thinking about investing in and, and, and measuring the impact of the companies they invest in. So two-part question, what do we do and what do we think the industry should be doing writ large? And thank you so much yeah. for raising impact. It didn't come up in our earlier conversation because this is so embedded in our thesis and philosophy at Pangea. All we wanna do is invest in and back high impact entrepreneurs that are solving big problems related to climate, food, water, and human health. And so it's 
really integral in everything that we do. Um, we do track the impact of our portfolio companies. We've been publishing an annual impact report, which is available on our website, and we can hopefully link to it in the description here. Just published our fifth annual impact report um, in April of this year. The four metrics that we track across our portfolio are all quantitative, tons of CO2 permanently sequestered or emissions avoided, increase in food production or reduction in food waste, cubic meters of water treated, and then lives impacted for our investments pertaining to human health. And so some of our portfolio companies will touch on multiple metrics here. Others will just touch on what every company that we invest in must have the potential to make a meaningful impact or a meaningful contribution towards at least one of these metrics. We don't specify the minimum threshold, but what we do look at is what is the magnitude of that impact and how does that translate from an impact multiplier on dollars invested. Just as you would look at an expected return on capital and a financial multiple, if I put in $10 into startup company X, how much will I get out based on revenue projections, financial models, market conditions, all of those things. We also look at the impact multiplier. So for every dollar invested, what is the magnitude of impact based on what the technology is, the company's financial forecasts, how the technology roadmap is looking. And that's really important. And what we found through correlating our existing portfolio is the higher the multiplier on impact, the more successful these companies are, both in terms of customer acquisition and revenue generation, but also in terms of financial returns to their shareholders. I guess let's extrapolate on that a little bit. Is this self-reported by the companies? Is this an independent report that the companies generate for you and say, hey, this third party has kind of blessed our operations given the work that we've done? And I guess part of that is also like given the stage of these companies, how real is that impact in terms of, you know, how, how you sort of calculate your quantum model? So I know a lot of different things going into that, but I guess the broader question is just like, how do you measure and verify when you are putting together this impact report? Absolutely. And, and to be clear, we are not certifying the impact of our portfolio companies, nor are we conducting you know, detailed life cycle analyses for our portfolio companies. Many of our portfolio companies are working with third-party organizations to conduct life cycle analyses, understand the embodied carbon in their products, in their operations. Some of our portfolio companies like Carbon Cure Technologies in the green building material space are generating you know, third-party verified carbon credits and so are working with robust partners on the generation, verification, and monitoring of those carbon credits. And so we pull those inputs and place those into our impact report. And so you know, we have a robust survey and questionnaire that we send out to all of our portfolio companies that feeds into the data in our impact report. Just like we have financial reporting requirements, we have impact reporting requirements for all of our portfolio companies. And I will say at the time of our investment, most of the CEOs that we invest in are already starting to think about impact. You know, maybe they've already done a preliminary life cycle analysis to understand the impact of their operations, or it's something that's in their roadmap over the next 12 to 24 months. It's something their customers are asking for. It's something their employees care about. We can help them work through that process. The second part of your question, Jay, was around what should the industry be doing writ large? Yeah. You know, I don't think we're in a position to prescribe 
what other groups or folks should be doing. You know, the SEC is talking about regulating, you know, ESG reporting for public markets. I think having some standards is a great place to start. And there are groups like Impact Capital Managers, of which Pangea is a member, which is working to not only build capacity and educate private markets uh, investors in the venture capital and, and sort of lower market private equity space around impact, but also align on common metrics, vocabulary, and methodologies to bring a little bit more consistency uh, to the industry. So there are groups that are, are working on this, and, and we're very supportive of those efforts. Yeah, and no, I'll, I'll sign on to that piece too, because I think it's always frustrating to me when I see a company that is it necessarily sort of climate related pitch to us? You guys, I think, have a very uh, specific focus around material sciences. When it comes to us, we'll see a range of gamut of companies that are reporting to have some kind of a climate impact. And the question to me is always, by what standard are we measuring it and who's verifying it? Um, so I'll co-sign on that. If somebody can actually come up with the right standards to do it, it would certainly make me feel better, right, about the, the companies that we're investing in. On that topic of prescribing things to the industry, I know uh, that's not a position you want to take, but I'll go ahead and say that I've been surprised by the number of climate funds that are focused on software first or software only uh, companies and solutions. Maybe sort of preaching to the converted, but given your impact on, on hard tech and, you know, uh, hard sciences, can software only work when it comes to climate solutions? What is your feeling on that? And that's a tough question, Jay. You're putting me on the spot. There is a place for software and software-only innovations in climate, whether it's around leveraging advancements in AI for materials discovery, climate modeling, and other sort of advanced compute functions that help accelerate the innovation window. We also need software tools to assist with carbon credit accounting, monitoring, verification, and sort of what does that marketplace ultimately look like? And it's going to fall into sort of like the fintech accounting function at some point. But I think we're fooling ourselves if we believe that software-only innovations and software tools and productivity and efficiency enhancements are going to make meaningful short-term impacts in atmospheric CO2, helping bolster and accelerate the energy transition and support climate science writ large. We really need hard tech and innovative science solutions to accelerate energy transition, You know, help drive down the cost of green hydrogen or low CO2 hydrogen production, improve the cost profile of energy storage and accelerate, you know, the decarbonization of our atmosphere. Where are you finding these companies, I guess, is the question. Are you spending time with, you know, professors at universities or programs like that where somebody is, you know, discovered something in a lab and, and has now taken it to commercial scale where, where it's interesting for you? Or is there another way that you, you find these unique companies? We definitely have relationships with universities, national labs, and other research centers but those are longer term relationships where we might be tracking a professor's lab or a research project for a decade before a company is spun out and is at the right stage for investment by a Series A firm that looks like Pangea. Most of the opportunities that we invest in are companies that we've tracked, you know, quite honestly, for multiple years. You know, maybe we met uh, the entrepreneur and the founder through an incubator or you know, thematically run accelerator 
related to clean tech, climate solutions, something in that vein. We also have cultivated really deep relationships with seed and pre-seed investors, and so a strong referral channel. It's a lot of sense. I want to chat with you about PH7, because that was a really interesting company uh, as I was looking across your portfolio, and I understand that you were quite involved in that. So uh, maybe let's start by, by telling our listeners, um, what is PH7 and how you met the, the company? Absolutely. So PH7 is a Canadian company based in, in Vancouver, and what they do is they've developed a low-temperature green chemistry-based approach to extract precious metals from a variety of waste streams. Well, what does this mean exactly? They're extracting platinum, palladium, rhodium, and other platinum metal groups from industrial catalysts. These could be catalysts that are found in you know, your car, in the catalytic converter, petrochemical uh, refining catalysts, uh, or materials that are in membranes for fuel cells and electrolyzers. And why is this a climate solution? Why is this important? Well, most of these metals today are extracted using smelters, which is a high temperature, energy intensive process. We put all the material in a furnace at about 2000 degrees centigrade. That takes a lot of energy, generates a lot of carbon dioxide emissions, and you're shipping you know, quite dense material all over the world in order to do this. And so PH7's solution is low temperature, low cost, doesn't have this large CO2 footprint, uh, and is quite an elegant solution. And so they're building their first of its kind commercial plant here in the Vancouver area at five tons per day, which will be up and running in 2024. And then they have a second generation technology using similar processes for copper extraction from both recycled material and, and also looking at primary resource extraction and copper uh, as you might know, is really important as an energy transition metal. As we move through increased electrification, we need it for our electric vehicles. We need it for um, grid transmission and distribution and electronics and, and other things like that. And what was it about the team or the product that kind of convinced you that, hey, this is a great investment that I need to be a part of? Yeah. So so two things. One, you know, high conviction in in Muhammad, who's the the founder and CEO of the company. He accomplished a tremendous amount with very little in terms of funding and time. You know, when we invested in the company, I think less than two million dollars in investor capital had gone into the company and they had an operational pilot plant at a hundred kilograms per day of material they were able to process with already deep cultivated relationships with customers, some of whom have also joined the Series A as co-investors. Yeah, I mean, ties back to the, the criteria you were laying out at the top of our conversation, right? Which is there's a product in market, there's customers you can talk to, there's real proof points that this is solving a customer problem. And then obviously, you know, the, the market, as you uh, just laid out for us, large and continues to stay important. So I was listening for that. I'm like, yeah, check, check, check and check, Sarah. That makes a ton of sense uh, on your end. When you look at, I guess, these companies, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't work in materials science, materials engineering. How do you evaluate the science behind these things? Or do you work with an independent partner to, to go ahead and validate that? And I ask that for more for selfish reasons, because we see really cool companies where I'm like, man, I am not smart enough to tell you whether the biochemistry works and, and how do I go about validating that as part of my diligence process? Yeah, Jay, you're absolutely right. I do not have an advanced chemistry or you know material science degree. I have undergraduate chemistry, biology, which you know now is also quite dated, like things that we're looking at investing in, like graphene, for example, weren't discovered when I was in school. And so how do we go about doing due diligence? And 
you know, we've got some very deep technical expertise on our team. We have team members who are PhDs in chemistry and material science. And members of our team have worked in heavy industries like oil and gas, pulp and paper, and mining. And so we really you know, do due diligence on every opportunity through a team-led process. We also rely on our limited partners to some extent. You know, we are backed by some of the world's largest industrial companies, many of whom are the subject matter experts in particular areas. And so we do consult with them around maybe less does the technology fundamentally work, but around market conditions. And is this opportunity that we're looking at truly competitive and compelling with what they have going on as internal research projects? And then thirdly, you know, customer references are really important because we're investing at the commercial stage. The customers that these companies have are largely very sophisticated. It's not, you know, Bob down the road who was buying one unit of X. These are sophisticated Fortune 500, you know, publicly listed companies, industry leaders. And so their technical due diligence process is really robust uh, as well. And so we always do customer reference calls. And you know, we do find occasionally there's something that we feel like we don't truly understand within our own team, or we think there are additional risks around scale up or in the technology roadmap. We will consult with you know third party researchers, academics, or other consultants to really make sure that we are crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's in our, our technical due diligence. It makes a lot of sense, especially given the stage that you're coming in at. You're de-risking some of the technology risk uh, through your network. The other thing that always sticks out to me is like kind of business model risk. And, and I'll describe that as like broadly sales cycle, right? How long it takes to get something into deployment to actually get paid for it, even once it's in deployment. How do you think about taking that sort of business model or sales cycle risk with these companies? And what do you do to de-risk that on your diligence front? Jay, it all comes back to stage of investment, both on you know, how we de-risk from a technology standpoint and a market standpoint. And of course, you can never fully de-risk either of those points. But because we're investing at the stage where the technology's already left the lab, there's been sort of multiple magnitudes of scale up from the bench uh, with product in the hands of customers. You know, the fundamental question of does the technology work has largely been answered. You know, there are still questions around, you know, can the company hit competitive pricing? Will there be performance degradations as the company scales even further? And of course, fast followers in the industry, will this continue to stay sort of a leading technology solution? Similarly, on the business model side, because we're investing in companies that already have secured a first customer and or are in you know, advanced negotiations for those first sales, there's some evidence around what the sales cycle is, what customers will be looking for to do their in-house pilots or other validations before becoming a repeatable customer. And so we can understand, is this a two-year sales process? Is it a six-month sales process? And we do a lot of diligence on what does the overall sales funnel look like? If there's nobody at the top of the funnel, we know it's a two-year sales process, the company is going to really struggle to you know, not only generate consistent revenue over the next several years, but to grow. And so we, we diligence the existing customers, also the sales funnel, and want to make sure we really understand the market dynamics. Is there a regulatory change that's accelerating customer adoption or a need to sort of make industry changes? Is it geographically constrained? And, and what are the, the right stage gates that will accelerate customer adoption, whether it's related to pricing, 
sales volumes and ability to produce delivery windows uh, and those types of things. That's actually exactly what I was hoping to learn because the the thing that I sometimes am challenged with is like how long of a sales cycle is too long, right? Is it nine months? Is it 12 months? And, and there's no hard and fast rules. And so, you know, for our founders that are listening to this, like if it takes you 12 months to close a customer, but it's a, you know, 500K ACV contract, that may be okay in your industry. I think it's um, often about educating the VC sitting across the table from you, why you feel like that, that time scale makes sense, right? And to your point about, looking in the pipeline, seeing where things are at, um, certainly feels like a good way to, to diligence it. And, you know, insofar as the founders that are pitching us can help us do that, it, it makes, uh, makes our job a little bit easier. Sarah, so wh why don't we spend a little time on uh, the segment that we love to call Hyper Hopeful, where we pick a topic, we get the guest's opinion, and uh, if there's more to unpack, uh, then we will. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Let's do it. So our first topic is green hydrogen. Uh, it's being touted as the fuel of the future. It has a potential to decarbonize heavy industries and transportation, and yet there are still concerns around production efficiency and infrastructure requirements for green hydrogen. Is it actually going to be the fuel of the future in the near future, let's say uh, by 2030? Hype or hopeful? Uh, this is a tough, let's qualify, let's qualify this. If we're going to say fuel of the future is hydrogen, you know, am I going to get into my hydrogen powered vehicle in 2030 and drive to the grocery store? No. I think, you know, we can all recognize that, you know, the industry uh, writ large is moving towards electrification for mobility and transportation. However, hydrogen is a fuel for industrial applications, fleet vehicles, heavy industries. Absolutely. And, you know, 90% of hydrogen produced industrially today is used on site in chemical processes, other industrial processes, food and agriculture to produce fertilizer. Um, and produce ammonia for fertilizer. Like it's really, really important industrially. And if we can reduce the CO2 footprint of hydrogen that's used in industry, whether that's through green hydrogen or you know whatever hue of the rainbow, turquoise, blue, you know, yellow, whatever you want to look at, but reducing the CO2 footprint of that or pairing hydrogen with point source carbon capture can absolutely have impact. You know, Pangea recently made an investment in the green hydrogen space. Um, and so this is an area that, you know, we have, you know, belief in um, as, as an important part of the energy transition. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And certainly something that we're uh, hopeful towards in terms of uh, specific use cases. But I hear you maybe, you know, putting 2030 on as my deadline for success was, was maybe a little aggressive as well. You, you talked about carbon capture a little bit. This has become kind of a favorite uh, whipping topic on this show. So I'm curious for your thoughts on it too. Obviously, real opportunities, we've seen it work at scale uh, with a lot of, you know, large funded companies. And yet some of those customers end up being, you know, oil and gas and natural gas companies. I, I literally just saw an article that talked about, um, might have been ExxonMobil or Chevron saying, well, with, uh, you know, direct air capture, we might be able to continue to stay in business uh, for 60, 70 more years, which climate proponents would say probably not a good idea. So carbon capture working at scale to help us get to net zero. Is that hype or hopeful? Uh, hopeful. It, it's absolutely required. But on the, the flip side, we can't continue with business as usual with everything else that we do industrially from a transportation perspective. And there's two pieces to carbon capture, right? There's you know, carbon capture, whether it's DAC, direct air capture, or point source capture from, you know, direct generated emissions to remove that from the atmosphere or prevent it from entering the atmosphere. But the second piece, which is 
you know, perhaps even more important and where this comment from the energy industry was coming from is what do you do with the CO2 once you capture it? Do we pump it underground and hope that it's permanently sequestered? Do we use it for enhanced oil recovery to reduce the CO2 intensity of conventional petrochemical products? Do we convert it into fuels, which is perhaps where you know, this comment was coming from to use it for aviation and transportation and all those types of things and end up with a carbon neutral fuel, perhaps. But if we think about the fuel side of things, it's just creating sort of a more closed loop carbon system. It's not necessarily reducing atmospheric CO2 unless we could find ways to sequester CO2 more permanently. And you know, one of the areas that we're spending a lot of time looking at and are really excited about is the idea of using nature and biology in particular to capture atmospheric CO2, whether it's in oceans or in soils, and, and are getting close to making an investment in the uh, nature-based uh, carbon capture or CO2 abatement uh, sector. And so look forward to being able to share more about that soon. Yeah, no, I, I will uh, keep an eye out for that, Sarah. I think it's it's certainly an interesting category for me. I'm somebody who kind of did a full, uh, you know, 180 on this topic because initially I was like, oh my God, why are we not just taking all of that IRA money and giving it right to direct air capture? And then you realize like, oh no, most of the customers for these businesses are in the energy industry. And yeah, to your point, maybe it's not, you know, adding net new carbon, but it's also not necessarily taking it out of uh, of cycle. Uh, and so certainly something to, to keep an eye on. I remain hopeful, I think as you do, uh, but but today it's it's not um, maybe being used in the way that climate proponents would be too thrilled about. So the last piece, I know we were going to chat a little bit about the IRA and, and government involvement at the top of our conversation. We didn't quite get there, so I'll ask it as, as a hyper-hopeful question. IRA, Washington, government in general as a catalyst for climate innovation. Is it hype or is it hopeful? It's hopeful. Um, you know, and there, there's two sides to the coin. You know, there's lots of detractors um, generally on, you know, should government be regulating industries, supporting one direction or another picking sides? Um, and, and I'm not going to comment on that. But if you look at the IRA in the U.S., you know, the Green Deal in Europe and, and other government-led initiatives where they're providing significant funding and or non-dilutive sort of subsidies for specific industries, the catalyst for private sector spending, innovation, jobs, cr job creation, and retraining are hugely impactful. And so, you know, the IRA in the U.S. has really encouraged a tremendous amount of investment from the private sector spending innovation related to clean tech broadly around you know, grid scale storage green fuels or low carbon fuels production, hydrogen, carbon capture, and more. At the risk of being a little bit controversial, I think these types of initiatives and subsidies and efforts need to be paired with a reduction in the subsidies and tax incentives for the industries in which they are trying to overtake. So if we're going to subsidize green hydrogen production and clean energy, we should probably reduce some of the other subsidies and tax incentives that we have on the oil and gas industry to just level the playing field a little bit. Similarly, if we want to invest in and support, you know, the cultivation of plant-based or alternative proteins, 
you know, should we be reducing some of the subsidies and tax incentives for traditional agriculture? That's, you know, a controversial and challenging opinion, perhaps, but, you know, something that I'd love to see as part of the dialogue. No, I, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of lobbyists uh, that might hear this topic and, uh, and, and their, their hair might catch on fire. Uh, no, but Sarah, you're spot on. We had a guest recently on the show who talked about the idea that dollars that are spent on buying carbon credits might be better spent on local and state political action, accomplishing much more that way than buying carbon offsets potentially. One of the things to me, coming from being a general sort of software investor into to now spending the majority of my time in climate adaptation, is how closely linked a lot of these challenges are to just how government operates or doesn't operate sometimes. And for VCs who have been so kind of bought into the mindset of move fast, break things, don't worry about it, government will catch up eventually, it just doesn't happen like this. And so there's a level of education, I think, for all of us on on how we manage interaction with the government if I think they believe like you that that overall that involvement is hopeful. Yeah, and I just want to double click on that for for a quick second for a lot of the listeners around government involvement, you know, at the local, you know, municipal and state level and how important that is. And we see it in disaster response, we see it in building codes and how you know, little changes in these areas, especially around sort of building codes, procurement, and other things can have really significant impacts on climate adaptation in particular in terms of, you know, resiliency of the built environment to wildfires, water use and reuse, energy efficiency for both heating and cooling, and how more efficient systems, you know, might be subsidized through rebates or or other programs to help reduce the overall burden on the grid. So your advice is get involved, right? If you care about these topics, uh, it's not enough to just be working with the companies and the startups that are doing it, but also to be paying attention to your uh, local political movement. That would be a great place to start. Fair enough. Uh, Sarah, so we'll close where we'd like to close with all of our guests, um, you know, reflecting on the fact that there is a lot of doom and gloom out there in terms of climate action or the lack of climate action. Uh, but we like to focus on the good, especially as we, we leave our listeners today. What is one thing that gives you a lot of hope and optimism about this broader fight against climate change? There are some brilliant scientists and you know, passionate, exceptional entrepreneurs that have dedicated their, their lives and their resources to helping solve some of these problems. We're seeing governments move into this. We're seeing you know, big companies and industry you know, move into this and support companies. Occidental Energy just acquired a direct air capture company, Carbon Engineering, for over a billion dollars, and are really putting their resources where their mouth is. It's not virtue signaling. And so, you know, I'm really encouraged, even in what has been a more challenging economic cycle, you know, we're August 2023, um, that investment is still flowing into the space at all stages. Yeah, certainly. And I'll echo that, which is the best part of my day is getting to speak to founders. And again, we're a little bit earlier than you because we invest the C stage. The best part of my day is speaking to founders and just seeing their enthusiasm, their excitement for what they're building, why they feel like it's you know going to be the solution of the future. Um, there is no better anecdote for climate anxiety than speaking to you know a seed and early stage founder about what they're building. So I'm right there with you. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on Climb today. I learned a ton. I am Super excited to keep up with more of the investments um, that you and Pangea are looking at over the coming future. And I uh, want to thank you so much for joining me on the show. 
Awesome. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Climb by VSC. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Special thanks to Credo for their help in producing and promoting this episode. To visit any part of today's conversation again, you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com. Our thanks to Josue Ramiro for posting these every week. Lastly, if you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out, and as far as I know, it's still carbon neutral. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you all next week on Climb by VSC.